a little boy tugged gently at a soldier's khaki sleeves. He said, excuse me, mister, but you've been across, I believe. I see the purple heart you wear shows what you've been through. Did you see my daddy, sir? Cause he's a soldier too. Did you see my daddy, Mr. Soldier? While you were fighting over there. I thought perhaps by chance you had met him there in France or somewhere over there across the sea. It has been so long since Daddy went away and my mama longs for him both night and day and I know it make her glad if you had seen my dad did you see my daddy over there the soldier's eyes turned misty as he watched the boyish face for it recalled a memory the time could not erase a buddy lost in action the best pal ever had. That buddy lost in action carried a picture of this lad. Did you see my daddy, Mr. Soldier, while you were fighting over there? I thought perhaps by chance you had met him there in France or somewhere over there across the sea. It has been so long since Daddy went away, and my mama longs for him both night and day. And I know it would make her glad if you had seen my dad. Did you see my daddy? Over there. Thank you. Well, thanks, Rick, for reading this earlier. And um, this is the passage he read. We'll be loosely looking at this today. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. What a fascinating story and 
Simon has invited Jesus into his home. We don't really understand why he's invited Jesus into his home. My assumptions are that he wants to dialogue with Jesus, ask him some questions, draw some conclusions then about who Jesus truly is. And what makes the story so compelling is really the twist of the, the woman of the city, the most likely a prostitute that finds her way into this uh, home, into this kind of like this somewhat of a dinner party, I suppose, um, and it was not uncommon for people to come in and stand around in this kind of setting. So people would gather around the table there and listen to Jesus uh, as a rabbi, as he would teach. And so th that wasn't unusual, but just kind of the twist of who enters. And then the tension brought on because of how Jesus shows such incredible grace to this woman. It makes it a fascinating and beautiful and powerful story. There's another story I thought of. We'll come back to this story, as I said, throughout the message loosely today. But as I was thinking, there was another story I encountered many years ago, and I've read this a couple times over the years, and thought, oh, I should maybe tell this story, but I've always been reluctant. There's a reason why I've been reluctant. Um, it's the kind of, it's, it, well, I'll just explain a little bit here of the context. Um, but the story has to do, it's, it's a story by Tony Campolo. Some of you maybe are familiar with him. He is an American sociologist, pastor, author, and public speaker. He is also professor emeritus of sociology at Eastern University and a former faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. And he happens to be in Hawaii one night. This is way back before 1990. And he happens into a diner at 3.30 in the morning. And um, it's really late. And it turns out that a lot of prostitutes kind of kind of came to this place, kind of hung out there. And that night, he said, about in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. Needless to say, he was a bit uncomfortable. And as the story unfolds, he overhears one of these women announce that her birthday is tomorrow, but she doesn't get much attention or much affirmation uh, about her announcement. They kind of blow her off. And uh, so, so uh, as, as those women eventually leave, Tony gets into a, a discussion uh, of the with the with the the guy that runs this kind of the sleazy that was uh, his uh, the his his term Tony's term the sleazy diner and he gets into a discussion and says hey you know what if we tomorrow night we threw a party a birthday party for that prostitute and uh Actually, the idea went over really well, and they were excited about it, and so him and this other woman that kind of run the diner decide they're going to do this for this woman the next night. And the next night, they have a cake there, and the woman comes in with all of her friends like they do every night, and uh, actually, yeah, the, the gesture was a totally, uh, totally well-received uh, endeavor. I mean, this woman comes in the next night, and uh, totally caught off guard and visibly moved by the gesture. And so this act of grace, you know, hit the bullseye. It really did. It was a fascinating thing. As the evening wears on and the, the lady leaves with her cake, uh, Tony gets into a discussion with this guy that runs the restaurant again. And he says, hey, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. Came up that he was a pastor and he was kind of offended by that. And he's like, so what kind of church do you pastor? And he says, well, I, I pastor a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And uh, that's kind of the thrust of the story. Now, there's a lot more nuance and color than my brief retelling uh, of that story this morning. I've been tempted several times to go through the whole thing. It's really fascinating. I shared an abbreviated re uh, version of it this morning. The reason I've never told the story, and, and, and I, I wrestle with this when I find illustrations by different people. I, I vet the person who's sharing it, and I'm like, well, what's, what is their, what's their beliefs? What's their stance? And several years ago, T Tony Campolo was pretty grounded, 
But several years ago, he kind of, some would say, left the reservation of evangelical Christianity. He embraced gay marriage and a lot of other progressive views. And so I've always had that story. What a fascinating story. You know, I love his picture of grace. But then it's really challenging because of how he compromised the truth and the process. And the reality is today we need to be this church. <clears throat> we need to be this church, really, that reaches the outcast, that reaches those individuals. Much like Helen's home for the, for the uh, you know, the, the, the unmarried pregnant girls that she runs, or that she's not runs, but she's involved in. We need those places. But we need to guard the truth. We need to hang on to the truth at all costs, and that's the reality that we live in. And... Uh, in one of Jesus' more memorable stories, we all know the story, right? They bring the woman caught in adultery before Jesus and they, the religious leaders accuse her of, you know, of, of a sin that she did commit. And they're like, should we stone her? And they're trying to trap Jesus. And we all know how that story goes. He gives that classic line, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then when all, the, when all those men leave, when all her accusers leave, he, he gives her two things. He says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, he gives her grace, but then he gives her the truth, go and sin no more. Like there is a standard, there is, a, there, there is such a thing as sin, and we need to be able to identify it. We really do. And the fact is, grace without truth has nothing significant to offer. Grace without truth has nothing significant to offer to anyone. You can throw a birthday party for somebody at 3.30 in the morning and show grace to that prostitute, but you got to be able to say, but this is what God is calling you out of. This is the life you're being called out of. And uh, this is what goes on in this room, in Simon's house, in this story. We get this kind of this tension that goes back and forth. Like Simon is visibly uncomfortable by the grace that Jesus is lavishing on this woman. And yet, at the same time, we will see Jesus uphold the truth in the environment there. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, fascinating picture. Because Jesus was holding on to the truth and more than merely offering this woman grace in the moment, he could call her out of a destructive and demeaning lifestyle. He could set her free from the sin that so condemns. This is week six of our series, Detoxify. This world can be a toxic place. Navigate it with a spirit of discernment. We'll talk about that today and grace. We'll talk about that today. And both of these things, and we've said really this toxic world that we live in, this toxic culture that we live in can poison our attitude and our beliefs and our, you know, our emotions and even eventually our behaviors. It can, t- it can poison our relationships. And so we need discernment and we need grace. We need both of those. And we're going to talk about that today in this message as we focus on really the toxic culture that we live in. We live in a toxic world. We do. And we need to be aware of that and we need to understand that. Um, the, the, the challenge today is navigating a toxic culture while ministering to its victims. We live in a world full of people who are victims of this toxic culture. We're all victims of sin. I get it, right? We've all, we're all born into sin and deal with sin, but there are those individuals. There are those that are marginalized. There are those outcasts. There are those that are on the bottom of the societal food chain and get looked down on. And how do we reach out to the victims in this culture? At the same time in the culture, there are those antagonistic people who just want to argue and fight and stir up trouble and tear down the truth. And so we have all of this going on, and how do we, in this process, how do we navigate these waters? We'll talk about it today. This message is really based on the tagline for our church, which I really probably should share more. 
uncompromising truth, radical grace, abundant life. That is what we are and who we are. That's, that's it. And it's, it's based on this paradigm, really, this kind of this math equation, right? That uncompromising truth plus radical grace equals abundant life. If, if we're going to find the abundant life of Christ, you have, a truth, you have to have a truth that's just uncompromised. You have to have a grace that is radical, that is scandalous in ways like Jesus shows us today. That will lead to, ultimately, to abundant life. And we will see today that the gospel is the fusion of grace and truth. The gospel is the fusion of grace and truth. This made me stop and think when I thought about truth and grace. I put this table together. I thought, you know, this would be a fascinating series in and of itself to look at some of the shades of truth and some of the shades of grace. But what does truth mean? Look at truth. Like it's fact. Like gospel. Gospel actually kind of means truth. Like, boy, I'll tell you, that is, that's, that's gospel. Like that really happened. That's factual. Veracity, correctness, wisdom, judgment, knowledge, honest, honesty, and discernment. They're kind of all like under the truth tree. And then over here under the grace tree, you have love and forgiveness and favor and patience and acceptance and you know, non-judgmental attitude and kindness and compassion, all of that. And I didn't juxtapose all of these side by side, but some of them kind of, I, maybe I did a few, like you have wisdom and acceptance, you have judgment and non-judgmental. I mean, both of those are going on in the life of Christ and need to go on in our life. <clears throat> we'll see that today. And then down there at the bottom, though, we have this idea of discernment and then empathy. We need both of those working in tandem if we're going to navigate the toxic culture we live in, and rescue its victims. So here's today's big idea. A toxic culture requires discernment and empathy, equal doses of discernment and empathy. And the reality is when we say that Jesus is truth and grace, he's totally truth and totally grace. It's not like he's half truth and half grace and sometimes he's gracious and sometimes he's truthful. He is equal measure all the time, 100%. That is who he is. A toxic culture requires discernment and empathy. Three steps to confronting a toxic culture. So let's walk through this today. Three simple steps and we'll start here. Number one, we must engage a spiritual war, not just a culture war. And and I thought about this because we often talk about we're in a culture war, but ultimately we're in a spiritual war and we need to identify it as such. In fact, I would say this, the spiritual war is not a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy theory. There is a spiritual war going on. Most of you have heard about conspiracy theories, right? There's zillions of them flying around today. Some of those are actually true. Some aren't true. It's hard to know which ones are and which ones aren't. Me and my brother have always kind of gotten into conspiracy theories and we, we've studied up on some of them and some of them have more credibility than others. But the point is here is that we're in this spiritual war. We don't always know what it looks like. We don't always know how the enemy attacks. But I will say some of these conspiracy theories, if we really believed we were in a spiritual war, some of these conspiracy theories, we'd look at them a little differently and say, you know, that might be true because the enemy is really out to get us and we don't often take that as seriously as we Need to, we don't. We're in a very interesting war today. Here are three actual dangers we can consider in this kind of the spiritual war. Not just the cultural war, but a spiritual war. Like the danger, the first danger is when the spiritual war is marginalized. When we say we're just fighting the culture, it's a culture war. We're just, we're just against culture. And uh, no, we're not just against culture and we're not just fighting culture. There actually is a spiritual enemy. Now, 
This enemy, though, it, this war is fought in the culture. And we're in a culture war. I'll give you an example. I found out, you've probably heard this story. I found out this week, my insurance company, State Farm, yeah, they're, they're giving books to K, kindergarten through fifth grade to teach them all about transgenderism. I'm like, hello? You're my insurance company. What are you doing? So, yes, there's a war going on around us, but I would say that's a spiritual war, not just a war with culture. Of course, they got a lot of pushback and they immediately stopped the program, but that's the war that we are in today. We need to be aware of that, this war that we're fighting. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, here's how Paul said it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're fighting the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so here's this reality. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're not fighting an insurance company ultimately or the people there. And even dealing with that takes discernment. I don't call up my insurance agent and just cancel my policies over this because he's a guy that might be as angry about it as I am. And so there's discernment needed in all, all of these issues, but we're in this spiritual war that's being played out in the culture. And there's a tension that exists here, really. Not just the, the tension between truth and grace, the tension that exists between the culture and the individuals in the culture. Like, yeah, the, the war's being fought out in culture, but my enemy is not necessarily all these individuals. There are people that are victims of the culture. I get it, there's individuals within the culture that are antagonistic and are trying to tear down everything we hold dear. But we need to understand and use discernment in this. Now, how does this play out in the story today? Well, this woman is, in, in a sense, through one lens, this woman is a victim of the culture. Like, she is, as I said, at the bottom of the food chain. She's looked down on. She's labeled a prostitute. She's been used and abused. And, uh, yeah, that's her status. And then there's Simon, and he kind of fits into this. Simon's kind of an interesting character in this. Uh, first of all, his name is super common. There's like nine Simons in the New Testament. And uh, that's fascinating in, in and of itself. And so what you find is you have Simon here, the Pharisee. And throughout the Bible, you have all of these Simons. They're clarified. Like there's Simon Peter, the apostle of, uh, and follower of Jesus. There's Simon Iscariot, the father of Judas Iscariot. There's Simon the Zealot, which is another disciple. There's Simon, the brother of Jesus, and here we have Simon, the Pharisee. And as we look at Simon today, we're going to see him through two lenses this morning. We're going to see him, in some sense, as he represents all of the nation of Israel. And in that sense, we see that here, that he kind of represents the enemies, like the spiritual war that Jesus engaged. When Jesus was on the earth, he was fighting a spiritual war. I mean, how many times do we not read that he cast out demons here and cast out demons there? And he was engaged in this really rough spiritual war. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders were like his arch enemies in this spiritual battle. And so to a degree, Simon, and we'll see this later on, something fascinating about Simon later on that will be <clears throat> really insightful. But note that he's engaged in this spiritual war. He even calls the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, he calls them the children of who? You're the children of Satan. <laughs> 
So, so there's this spiritual war in Jesus' day, and of course he takes that war all the way to the cross, and he ends that war, he wins the ultimate victory. I mean, the war has been won. We're just waiting on the enemy. We're waiting on the devil to surrender and wave the right flag and say, okay, I lost. And uh, <clears throat> so we're still caught in the thrust throes of that war. But at the same time, this is a personal conversation with Simon, and so Jesus will engage him not just not just as a representative of all the Jewish leadership and the Jewish nation, but really as an individual, Simon has to make some personal decisions. And as I said, he invites him into his home. He probably wants to get a feeling for who really is this Jesus. Here's the second danger with this within the context of the spiritual war, and that's when biblical truth is politicized. And this happens all the time. There are things in the Bible that are just clear right and wrong. Like we don't have to argue and debate them, but they become politicized. They become human rights. They become issues to discuss and debate. And then you even have members of Congress who would claim to be like, they would claim to be Catholic, and yet they certainly don't stand on even the teachings of their own church because these are political issues. And the main reason for this, there's, there's two reasons. One is sometimes it's to garner votes, but I think really it's to bypass the Bible. Like, how, what can we do to just not have to discuss the Bible? That's not a biblical issue. You know, abortion or homosexuality, any of these issues, transgenderism, they're not biblical issues. They're societal issues. They're human right issues. And, um, and that's the danger that we get into when these issues are politicized. Let me give you one example. I was thinking about this this week about abortion. Here's what, here's, what, here's what we do with abortion. We politicize it in the world today and society and think about what abortion isn't. It's not a human's right, it, human rights issue. It's not a personal decision. It's not a moral issue or a spiritual issue or, or it's not just a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue and abortion ignores the role the creator has in every life that is conceived. Think about this. Two people get together, conceive a life. And so a life is born, it's conceived. God the Father is involved in that at that very moment, gives that life a soul, an eternal soul. Like of all the creation on earth, all the animals, we are created in his image. We're at the top of the, I guess, the creative food chain, right? We, we have the image of God. Like we were created... All the, creation, all the creatures in Genesis are created after their own kind, but we are created in the image of God. Part of the responsibility of being created in God's image is that we, can't, we, we just can't treat life the way we do. Like God has a say over every life because he gives every life a soul. So look at these two verses here. Psalms 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything on this earth, God owns it. He's the one who owns it. He has ultimate say in it. Behold, Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, uh, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Everything on the earth, God's responsible for it. All life, Acts 17, all life is sustained by him and through him and for him. Now, what he does do is he's a gentleman and he gives everybody an individual right to receive or reject him. Everybody has that right. And uh, that's the simple reality. And any unborn baby has the right to grow up and make that personal decision for themselves. Will I receive or will I reject Christ? That's the reality of life. It's not a political issue. It is a spiritual, biblical issue godly issue and one last one is when the church is compromised 
When the church is compromised, again, we have to be very careful that we don't let ourselves... And that opening story with Tony Campolo, the, the sad thing is, is I love his take on grace. I love his ability to show grace in extreme measures. We need more of that. But if you sacrifice the truth, you, you sacrifice your message of grace and the ability to invite people out of a destructive lifestyle. 1 Timothy 3, 14 again, although I hope to come to you soon, says Paul, I am writing to you these things in case I am delayed so that you will know how each one must conduct himself in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's our job to be the pillar and foundation of the truth in the culture today. In a world full of people enslaved by sin and victimized by the culture, there is only one thing that can set them free, and that is the truth. That is, Jesus said it best, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we cannot compromise or sacrifice the truth. And uh, that's the challenge that we are confronted with. A toxic culture requires discernment and empathy. And as we go forward, we're going to see this take more and more shape and more and more form. We're in a spiritual battle. It requires empathy. It requires grace grace, truth. Here's, here's our second step this morning. We must employ discernment to successfully navigate a toxic culture. So we're in this toxic culture and now we need discernment. Like how do I navigate it? Like how do I hold up the truth in this culture and yet how do I love the individuals that are victimized by it? How do I show them truth and grace? How do I do what Jesus does in, does in this moment? How do I give a scandalous grace and invite somebody out of a destructive lifestyle in the process. I was surprised how many verses, again, you can find in the Bible that speak to discernment. I made a long list, and I'll just put together here a handful of ideas of how we can show discernment today, or where we need discernment, really, in this culture, this toxic culture. Let's run through a few of these here. For instance, to know the difference between the truth and a lie. We need discernment to know the difference between the truth and the lie. Because sometimes, sometimes the lie can be really appealing, can sound like the truth. Colossians 2, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul to the church at Colossae there. And uh, they're in a, a circumstance, a culture much like ours, and there's his advice to them. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So be very careful that you don't buy into a lie, that you don't get deceived by a lie, because it's easy to do that. And this culture is built on a number of very significant lies, like... What will bring us happiness and significance? Where do we find true value and worth? Where did the world come from? What happens when we die? There's all these lies that are out there and, and how the world answers them and we need to be very, very careful. At the same time, look at this to the Corinthians. For such men are false apostles, says Paul, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And Paul says even, not just society, but even the church, 
People will invade the church and they'll be angels of light. They'll deceive. They will paint, <clears throat> they will paint scenarios and philosophies as truth when they are really deceptive lies. In other words, what looks like the light and what appears to be illuminating turns out to be the darkness. One of the ways it's labeled today, the war that we're in, we're in like an information war. And that's true. It's like we don't know. Like there are so many things. You hear so, so much news. And it's like, what is true and what isn't true and we don't know? And then you mix in all the conspiracy theories that are out there and you get really confused. Like what is true and what isn't true? And we need discernment to know. We're informed by numerous news sources that run 24 hours. We're entertained by all sorts of movies, music, podcasts, and celebrities. We're connected by all sorts of social media opportunities. It takes discernment to find the truth amidst the darkness. It just does. Look at this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. What is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? And so I need discernment to know God's will versus my will. I need discernment to know, hey, is that me speaking to myself, telling me what I want to hear? Or is that, no, that's, that's actually God speaking through his word, speaking to me, speaking through a friend, speaking through the church, speaking through a message you hear on Sunday morning. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to me, or no, that's just me speaking to myself. We need discernment to know the difference. How about this one? We need the discernment to know the difference between making a judgment and being judgmental. Like we all know, we're not supposed to judge. I'm not supposed to look and see the speck in your eye while I got a log in my own eye, right? We're not supposed to be judgmental, but I'm supposed to make judgments. I'm supposed to test the spirits. I'm supposed to make good judgments, and I'm supposed to shine the light in the darkness and declare the truth. And we do live in a world today when all you have to do is declare what the scripture says and somebody says, you're judging me. No, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that's the truth. And the truth will set you free. But there is discernment there. How do we navigate this? Where I, I make good judgments, I declare the truth, and yet I'm not a judgmental person. How about this one? To know the difference between an individual and the culture. And again, we need to be able to separate the two. Like, this, this is the culture over here. This is an individual who is a victim of the culture, who is hurting, who is searching, who is looking. This is someone that God opens my eyes to and says, reach out to this person like Jesus reaches out to this, this woman. Like Tony reached out to that prostitute in that diner at 3.30 in the morning and touched her life. And that's a good thing. We need that. We need more of that to differentiate. And we need discernment because there are individuals in the world today who are just antagonistic, who are looking to pick a fight, looking to sue us, looking to do whatever they can to tear down the truth. And so there's, there, there's a lot going on there. We need to be aware of this. Colossians 4 tells us this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It takes discernment to know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. How about this one? To, to know the difference between what's right and what's almost right. I heard that one on, uh, a couple weeks ago on a meme, and I saved that. I thought, that's really powerful. What's the difference, to know the difference between what's right and what's almost right. I, I thought this was fascinating. 
learning technological discernment from the Amish. Have you ever seen an Amish horse and buggy going down the road, driven by a bearded man with a black hat? You might have heard that these traditional Christian groups think all technology is bad, but that's not true. They're really just doing something we all should be doing, which is practicing discernment. When an Amish community member is interested in using a new technology, the community asks whether it will be helpful or harmful to the relationships in the community. In one case, a community member wanted to buy a hay baler to make his work more efficient. But the community wondered how this would affect relationships if workers no longer had to work with each other. Another wanted to run propane gas into his family's bedrooms so each could have a light on at night. But the community wondered whether this would separate the family in the evening where they previously shared the evening together in the living room. They rejected both ideas. You and I might come to different conclusions than the Amish about technology, but we would be wise to ask the same sorts of questions. How will this smartphone or this social media app affect relationships within my home? Will this subscription to Disney Plus bring bring our family together or give us more reasons to live separate lives? An article from the Washington Post a couple years ago, fascinating to know the difference, discernment between what's right and what's almost right. What's good and, well, maybe that's not so good. And then finally, one more. We need discernment to know the difference between grace and compromise. We need the discernment. We know. Like, like, okay, when am I showing grace and when am I compromising the truth? And I'll admit, there's a fine line there and sometimes we need discernment. We need the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit within us to help us navigate that fine line. And we all could do more to show much more grace, much more scandal. We could all do more to show much more scandalous grace. But we always need to make sure that we do not compromise the truth at the same time. The truth is, compromise is not always a bad word. Think about it. There's a place for it as long as we aren't compromising the truth or our identity in Christ. Like, you know, you compromise with your wife how you're going to paint the walls in your home, or you compromise on what kind of car you're going to buy. There's all kinds of times compromise is okay. But there are times when it is definitely wrong, and we need discernment to know the difference. A toxic culture requires discernment and empathy, both. And so we're going to move back into Simon's house again and pick the story up there again. And we're going to talk about this third Okay, first, we must engage a spiritual, not just a culture war. Second, we must employ discernment to successfully navigate a toxic culture. And third, we must embrace the power of empathy and the scandal of grace. We must embrace it. To embrace the power of empathy and the scandal of grace is so necessary today. If we're going to live the kind of life that Jesus mirrors for us in Scripture or models for us in Scripture What's really interesting as we navigate a culture that is indeed hostile, hostile to the gospel, it is then interesting to consider how the gospel pushes back. The gospel is the answer for those victimized by a toxic culture. Look at this verse in 1 Corinthians. This is fascinating to me. I never looked at it this way before. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Isaiah on the nature of the gospel. And I want you to hear this verse within the context of this dinner party in Simon's house today, right? And just know this, the the gospel was scandalous. Here it is, right here. Look at this. Here's what he says. Behold, I am lying in Zion, 
a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so here's what this verse is saying. I never saw it. There's two sides to this verse. And we see him in Simon's house. Simon, on one hand, stumbled over the gospel and over the grace of God. And it was a rock of offense. Excuse me. He was offended by this scandalous grace that Simon showed, or that Jesus showed. He, he was offended by that. He, he was, would you say, ashamed? Like, he was ashamed of Jesus. Like, what are you doing? I'm uncomfortable here. What are you doing? And yet, look at this. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so here's this woman of the city, this prostitute. She ain't ashamed. No, the gospel does the, does the exact opposite for her. And so this gospel was scandalous to some and unashaming to others. Unshaming to others. And I'll, I'll admit, unshaming is not a word. But it is this morning. Because that's the only way I could, could, could make the point. The gospel is scandalous to Simon. It's like, that's too much grace. That's scandalous. Not to this woman. She won't be put to shame. It took away her shame. And I think that is so amazing and so incredibly fascinating. And I just love the way that Jesus just receives this woman's worship. He just embraces her worship in this moment. And that brings me to this kind of this question this morning we're going to get into as, as we talk about, you know, how do we communicate grace in the world today? Look here, though. There's, there's an interesting thing I want to see before we get into that question. Kind of an interesting twist in the story I never mentioned before. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, to himself, Okay, speaking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And so he's like, if he was really a prophet, if he was really who he said he was, he would know who she was. And what does Jesus do but turn the tables around and says, hey, Simon, I know who she is, but I know who you are too. I can see right inside of you. And I think that is so amazing and so fascinating that he, that had to be an uncomfortable moment when, when he's looking inside of Simon's own heart and revealing what is in Simon's heart. We'll tell you how he did that in a moment. But I think it's just actually fascinating. And he never calls out the woman. He exalts the woman, but he calls out the self-righteous Simon for his attitude towards the woman. He lets, he basically tells this host, you know, you failed me, like, she did everything you were supposed to do. That's the culture of that day. The roads were dirty. You wore sandals. You came to a guest house and they would wash your feet and clean you up and, and, and make you feel welcome. And he did nothing for Jesus. He was fixated on himself and what he was going to learn about Jesus. And, and this woman comes in totally enthralled with Jesus and pours out her worship and praise. And he calls Simon out on that. The other question here that struck me... Um, I'm not sure why that's there, but the other question that struck me is, what did Jesus do to evoke such emotion out of this woman? What did Jesus do to evoke such emotion out of this woman? And most commentators believe they had some previous encounter. At some point, she had encountered him. He had touched her life. She's here to say, thank you. Like, you have set me free. Like, there is something in you, I, or there's something in you I see and I long for and I need and I want. Somehow he evoked some deep emotion in her. 
And, and I, I think it's so amazing. There's, there's, there, there's, again, there's a part of the story that we don't see as she comes in and makes a fool of herself. The room is filled with the perfume that she's pouring on his feet, the ointment. But then she does something else, like she's washing his feet with the hairs of her head. Did you get that? Like she's washing his feet, his dirty feet with her hair. <laughs> I mean, his feet are probably really dirty. I don't matter to her. And so her hair gets extremely dirty as she washes his feet. What, what an amazing. And then Jesus just receives it. Like, that's fine. Like, her hair has been who knows where. That's okay. You can wash my feet. You can love on me. And in the story, Simon looks at Jesus as a prophet, right? And he is, but he's more than that. He's a, he's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He's a shepherd. And ultimately, he is our Savior. He's our Messiah. He's our life and he's our identity. He's so much more than just a prophet. And that's why he allows this, this woman to come to him because he has everything that she needs. It's an amazing thing. As this woman needs to pour out her love, worship, and gratitude, and that's exactly what Jesus allows her to do. He receives it. And it's really amazing to me at the same time to think, I might have put it on you, yeah, it's amazing. How can such a sinful woman be drawn to such a holy man? Doesn't that just blow you away? But there is something about Jesus that is so appealing and so attractive. Everything she isn't, Jesus is. And in a society that would look down upon her and call her the worst of sinners, a woman of the city, a prostitute, she is drawn to this most holy man. And we have to ask ourselves why. In fact, we have to ask ourselves really this question, are people drawn to me? Are people drawn to me? And not, do, do I come across as holier than thou and so I'm unapproachable or are people simply drawn to me because of my humility, because of how I emulate Christ in this moment? I go back again, that's why that verse was on there, right? To, 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 to use and speak the truth with gracious words, to share the gospel with, with gracious words like salt. And, uh, and, and it's true, like the gospel will be offensive to many people. In fact, you, you almost have to be offended by the gospel to be saved by it. You have to be offended by the fact that the gospel says, you're not good enough, you're a sinner. You got to be kind of offended before you say, okay, well, I get it. And then you're saved. But here's the deal. While the gospel is offensive, we don't have to be, do we? And Jesus was never personally offensive, at least, at least not to those who legitimately wanted the truth. He probably did offend the religious leaders all the time, but that was another paradigm altogether. How do we communicate grace then? A toxic culture requires discernment and empathy. So then how do we go about communicating grace? Well, let me, let me, let me show you something here. This is fascinating. So think about Jesus in this moment. So how does Jesus, like, he knows what's on Simon's mind. You might ask that question, like, how does he know what Simon's thinking? And uh, I, I share this all the time, right? When Jesus came to earth, he set aside his divine privileges. He was still entirely God, but he, he wasn't all-knowing. He didn't know. He couldn't read everybody's mind. He set that stuff aside. So how in this moment? Well, the Holy Spirit could have told him. But honestly, you know what I think? I think anybody there probably could have picked up on what Simon was thinking. I think he could read Simon's body language, and Simon was quite uncomfortable. He could feel the tension in the room when this woman came in and started to pour out her praise. 
And so, yeah, I think that's, that's really how he knew. And uh, yeah, simply by reading her, his body language, he knew Simon's really uncomfortable. <laughs> he could tell that. And I thought about that because that's really powerful for you and me. Like, how do we communicate grace? Well, with our body language. I mean, we can communicate grace just with our body language. If you were in a diner late at night and eight or nine prostitutes came in, would you be comfortable? You know, if you were in Simon's house, would you be comfortable in this environment? Would we be comfortable if certain people like came into the church on Sunday morning? You know, would we be... Our body language, people can read our body language. They can know if we're comfortable or if we're not. If we're defensive or if we're not. I think that is so really powerful. David Brooks writes in the New York Times, uh, Rabbi Elliot Kukla once described a woman with a brain injury who would sometimes fall to the floor. People around her would rush to immediately get her back on her feet before she was quite ready. She told Kukla, I think people rush to help me because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. Probably. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. We all need someone to get down on the ground with us. That is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What a powerful picture. And we get, a, it's un, yeah, get her up. That's uncomfortable. That's, that's like, that doesn't look right. Instead of getting down there on the ground with her, meeting her where she is, that's what we need. So one of the most powerful ways that we can communicate grace is simply with our body, receiving someone with our body language. And this is exactly what Jesus does, doesn't he? Like his body language is like, you can love on me all you want. You can touch my feet, you can kiss my feet, you can pour ointment on me, you can, that's right. Because I'm everything you need. We can communicate grace as we make people feel welcome. It kind of ties back to that last point. But just think about that as we create a, create a space for those who are far from Jesus, who are the, the marginalized or the outcasts of society. Now again, even this point needs the nuance of the day we live on because in some senses today, who are the marginalized? Well, maybe we feel like the marginalized sometimes. Like today as Christians, it's like, yeah, you and your Judeo-Christian ethic, you know, you, you'd get the back of the bus. Like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to encounter or deal with you. So there, there can be that going on. But there still is this issue today. There are those like this woman in society today, marginalized, victimized, hurting, lonely, searching for an answer. And they're a mess. And we need to reach out and love on them and point them to Christ. Give them grace and give them truth and give them empathy and use discernment. We need to do all of that. And yes, there are the antagonizers around us as well. How about this one? Uh, how do we communicate grace? As we tell the truth. As we simply tell the truth. Again, there are a lot of churches today whose goal is to not be offensive. I said it a moment ago. We don't have to be offensive, but the gospel will be. And so you can't shield the gospel from people, the truth from people, so you don't offend them. And I think that is so incredibly, incredibly powerful. Offended simply means you have recognized what the Bible says about your sin. So we tell the people the truth. That's simply the reality. How about this one? We, can, we, we communicate grace as we elevate someone's worth. 
always love this part of the story. I think I've pointed this out before, but it's fascinating if you can just picture it. Like here is Jesus at the table looking at Simon, engaging Simon in a conversation. They're talking and they're having this conversation go out over here. And then what does Jesus do? Look, look what it says here. I think I have the verse up here, right? Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Like, do you see her? And then in that moment, her worth and her, 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 her value just, just soar in that moment as every eye in the room is on her, like her. Like this woman who is the prostitute, the woman of the city. It's like, do you see her? What she has done for me? Do you see her heart? Do you see her love? And I, and I just wonder, do we see sometimes the people that we look down on? Because we do, right? It's like we subtly do. There's people we see and we, we, if we're not careful, we've, we can like kind of look down on them for whatever reason. And then it's like, do we really see them? Do we see their hurting? Do we see their pain? Do we see their, what they're longing for? What do we see? I think that is so incredibly powerful. Two more ways we can communicate grace today. What, what Jesus does next in the story is he talks to Simon and then he gives him this parable. So there, there's two people and one guy owed, they both borrowed money from the same lender and one owed 50 pieces of silver and the other owed 500 pieces of silver and they were both forgiven of their debt because they couldn't repay it. And he says, which one is more grateful? And Simon says, well, of course, the one who was forgiven a greater amount of money. To have to pay back 50 uh, silver coins is not the same as having to pay back 500 silver coins and so yes, he would be more gracious. Now, Understand the point in that is, is not to say that this woman, like, she needed a lot more grace than Simon did. That's not the point of, of what he's saying there. The fact is this woman is just cognizant of how much grace she needs. Simon is not. And there is a fascinating, there's a fascinating little thing tucked away in the story I never thought about. When you think about, think about, for instance, Simon a minute, I'm going to give you the verse here first. Think about this verse here, Ezekiel 16. This is speaking of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And, and just think about Simon representing the religious establishment and the Jewish nation. He says, then I passed by you. This is when God called Israel into a covenant. Then I passed by you and saw you. And you were indeed at the, at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord. But you were confident in your, in your beauty and acted like a prostitute because of your fame. You lavished your sexual favors on everyone who passed by. Your beauty became his. And so just think about this. Like the nation of Israel was always identified as that adulterous nation, those prostitutes. That's who Simon represents, and he doesn't even see it, right? And so here we are. How do we communicate grace when we drop the pretense and realize we are no better than anyone? Like, like here is Simon offended by this prostitute in his home doing what he's doing, and it's like, Simon, that's you. You're, you're, that's, that's the Israelite people. In fact, look at this. Speaking to his own generation. He, Jesus, answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He called them out and said, yeah, you're, 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 you're an adulterous people. You're a 
prostituting people. That's who you are. Simon, that's who you are. So fascinating. How do we show grace? We drop the pretense and we realize I need just as much grace as anyone. Like there is no one that needs more grace than me. (laughs) Can we all stand up and say that this morning? It will change our whole paradigm. And finally, one last way. This is really powerful. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'll just think about this a minute. How this story ends. He says to this woman, okay, your faith has saved you. Now you can go in peace. You know what the greatest picture of grace in this entire story is? It's the grace that this woman can show to Simon. How do we communicate grace as we forgive those who have victimized us? Like here's the one who looked down on her and judged her and condemned her. And the best picture of grace is when she stands up and says, Simon, God has poured out such incredible grace in my life. I got enough grace to forgive you. And I forgive you for your attitude. And he may not even be willing to admit but she can do that. And it's true how the gospel is the answer. Like all the issues today that we deal with, all the societal injustice ills in the world today, the gospel answers them because there is enough grace and enough mercy and enough forgiveness and enough equality found in the cross to solve any problems that we encounter. I just think that is so amazing, so incredibly powerful. And he says to her, your grace has forgiven you. You can go in peace. You can go home with peace. You don't got to take home the weight of Simon's judgment on you. You don't have to be a victim anymore. You have been set free by the truth. Go home in peace. Go home in peace. Today's big idea, a toxic culture, requires discernment and empathy. And I will leave us with this today. Again, what did we learn? We learned that the toxic culture around us can poison our relationships, our attitudes, our emotions, our beliefs, and even our behaviors. The toxic environment needs to be confronted with both discernment and grace. We saw that we are ultimately fighting a spiritual war, not simply a cultural war. We saw that we need discernment to fight this war. So among other things, we know the difference between the culture and its victims, between showing grace and empty compromise. We saw the gospel of Christ and its scandalous nature can either bring us shame or it can actually unshame us as it did for this woman in today's story. We saw then that we need to embrace both the power of empathy and the scandal of grace. I listened to a podcast recently, someone I listened to on occasion I listened to this personal story interview he did with someone who left the adult entertainment industry. After years in the business, they quit and got out. How did they manage to leave? They came to Christ. They found a new identity that allowed them to eventually leave behind their old identity. The sad reality, though, was this woman who was basically trapped in an industry that took her value and worth, and she didn't want to be there but could not find a way out. That is where the gospel comes in. That is where we come in. While we can hate that industry and the negative effects on society, at the same time, we need to see the woman like this one. The, woman, the, the women who are victims of this culture, trapped in a prison of their past choices and longing for a way out. We need to point them to Jesus to let them know there is forgiveness and a new identity in Christ. They can come in faith. They can go In peace, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your immense grace. And there's not one of us in this room today that needs 
less grace than somebody else. Oh, we all need all the grace you can give us. And you've done that. Like you have forgiven us from every sin we will ever commit. If we've come to you and received your forgiveness, we are totally forgiven for the rest of our life. We are set free. How amazing is that? And that is what inspires us to go out like this woman and just pour out our praise and our worship on Jesus. And we don't always get it right. We don't always live as we should. But it's not about us. It is all about you. God, help us use discernment in grace. Help us have empathy for those trapped in the, the, this culture of sin and, um, and, and, and demeaning lifestyles and th- what just what tears them down. Help us have empathy for them. Help us reach out to them. Help us hold uh, up the truth so that people can find the answer to their ills. They can find the response to their sin. They can find all they're looking for in Christ. God, thank you for Jesus, who is the perfect picture of both empathy and discernment, of both truth and grace. And he is our life. May we go out and live like him this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.